Today's reading is about getting our faith right. It's about raising up a new generation of leaders. It's about the life-changing power of God and it's about our response to that power. It really seems really broad in its scope, but I reckon it's all held together by one verse. Verse 20, which is the very last verse we read, which says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As new leaders were being raised up, the word of the Lord was continuing to increase and prevail mightily. As the disciples were getting their faith right, the word of the Lord was continuing to increase and prevailing mightily. As the power of God was being demonstrated and as new believers were giving up everything to follow Jesus, the word of the Lord was continuing to increase and prevailing mightily. So in Acts chapter 19, we move from Paul's second missionary journey to the beginning of his third missionary journey, but we've got a bit of an overlap today because at the end of chapter 18, we get a little bit of a catch-up on what's happening in Ephesus between Paul's two visits. Right, so if you have a look at that map there, we've got Paul's second missionary journey up there. And he's picked up Priscilla and Aquila at Corinth. Um, just there near Archive. You... Yep, where Robin's pointing. Good girl, Robin. Well done. And, um, and as Paul heads home to Antioch, he drops Priscilla and Aquila off at Ephesus. And we're not really told much about what Paul does at Ephesus there at that stage. It, I suspect he's probably only there for a few days. And um, and then he continues on to Antioch. And then from his missionary base at Antioch, that sort of seems to be like the home church that he gets sent out from, um, he begins his third missionary journey and we're not really told much about what happens on that journey until he actually arrives at Ephesus. And then he stays at Ephesus for two whole years. Now that's a long time for Paul to stay in any one place. So, We're actually picking up the story between Paul's two visits, between when Paul drops Priscilla and Aquila off at Ephesus and when he returns on his third trip. And we meet a bloke by the name of Apollos. What are we told about Apollos? Well, Apollos is a Jew. He's a native of Alexandria, which in later times becomes quite a centre for Christianity Um, Alexandria, by the way, is in Egypt. It's in northern Egypt. It's a port on the Mediterranean. You know where the Nile River comes up into the Mediterranean and breaks out into a delta? Well, it's right on the western edge of that delta that, um, that Alexandria could be found. And Apollos arrives in Ephesus and he starts to preach in the Jewish synagogue. And the description that we're given of Apollos, I actually find it a little bit confusing um, because we're told some good stuff first about him, that he was an eloquent man, he was competent in the scriptures. Now, remember when the New Testament's talking about the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. All right, so he was eloquent, he was a really good speaker, and he knew the Old Testament scriptures really well. He'd also been instructed in the way of the Lord, so when Paul... When um, Luke, who wrote Acts, is talking about the way of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, and he did this because he is fervent in the Spirit. Now, you've reckoned this church, they've hit the mother load here. This is, this is the dream preacher. He's eloquent, he knew his Bible, he, he had been instructed about Jesus, and he taught accurately, and he is fervent in the Spirit. He had it all together. 
you know, it's pretty hard to get a preacher who has all of those things coming together in, in one. Sometimes the most theologically correct sermons are delivered with absolutely zero fervency. Have you ever heard any of those? Yeah. Why? Because the preacher either doesn't really believe it or is not confident of the power of it. Fervency comes from a confidence in the truth and the power of what we proclaim. You don't have to be a gifted orator to have fervency. Fervency comes from a confidence in the truth and the power of what we proclaim. Don't ever get the the performance of public speaking confused with fervency of spirit. I never joined the school debating team because I was no good at it. To be in a debating team, you have to be able to speak passionately and convincingly about something you don't even believe. That's not fervency. That's performance. It's a skill you can learn, but fervency, that comes when you're speaking about something you really believe. And if you really believe the truth and the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit will give you fervency. And you don't have to be the preacher up the front of a church to have fervency. It means when you share your faith with your friends or with your next door neighbour or with your workmates, you can have fervency in sharing your faith because you're confident in the power of the gospel and you're confident that you actually believe that this is true. Anyway, so here we have Apollos, and we're told all of these good things about him, but there's something missing in Apollos. We're told that he knew only the baptism of John, and we'll talk about that more a little bit shortly. And although we've already been told that he taught accurately about Jesus, we're then told that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they pulled him aside. And they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Alright, so he was preaching about Jesus and he is full of fervency in his preaching and he is mostly right in what he is teaching, but he had a few things wrong. So what did they do with him? Well, I want you to notice what they didn't do. They didn't ban him from preaching. And they didn't put him on trial for heresy and they didn't burn him at the stake. Apollos was, was a new preacher, he was just starting out and he had it mostly right, but some of the stuff that's actually important, he had wrong. And so they took him aside and they explained to him more about it and so that he could then get it right. And I reckon Apollos must have had a teachable spirit because the church at Ephesus was then willing to send him on to Corinth with their stamp of approval on him. They wrote him a letter of introduction and said, this is Apollos, you... You feel every confidence to put this fellow up and he'll, he'll preach well for you. The Lord is always raising up new leaders. The word of God increases. How does it increase? Well, one of those ways that it increases is the Lord is raising up new leaders. He's raising up people who are willing to preach. And my, how our world and our country needs more preachers. When we were living in Dolby, hello Dolby folk, where are the Dolby folk? And there's some ex-Dolby folk who were there when we were there. I was blessed that my minister, Ron Watson, was a man who encouraged to de- people to develop their preaching skills. He encouraged me and others, I think 
you, you were probably encouraged in that time, Phil. Yep. To preach. Now, I hadn't been to Bible college. Um, I had started studying a few biblical subjects externally through theological college. And, and I would just want to really encourage you, if, if you actually love the word of God and you want to study it deeper, don't be afraid to study theology. Some people will tell you a whole load of rubbish that, you know, go to theological college, it'll destroy your faith. What a load of rubbish. How can studying the word of God destroy your faith? It'll just make it stronger and stronger. And I'd like to encourage people even here today to look for some good theological colleges who do some external studies that you can get involved in. Or maybe even go over there, go off full time. Um, But I'd done very little study. I didn't have any university degree. I didn't have any preaching qualifications. Probably the only thing I had going for me was I was willing and I believed and I loved Jesus. And our church at Dolby, well, we only had one preaching place, Dolby. Um, but we're surrounded by a whole bunch of, of little towns that didn't have full-time preachers. So our minister one time goes off to Presbytery and just makes an open announcement. Oh, if anybody's wanting any preachers, we've got people who are willing to travel. And so me and a few other folk ended up going to places like Dolby and Tara and Jandowi and Chinchilla and Warrior and Brigalow and John Darien and Oakey and Pittsworth and Milmarin and Roma and Cunnamulla and Wallumbilla. There were plenty of opportunities to preach. Now, did we have everything perfectly correct? Who said no? (laughs) Well done. No, we didn't have everything perfectly correct. And I look back at some of my early sermons now, stuff which I actually thought was pretty good at the time. Isn't it amazing how preachers can be just filled with so much pride, particularly these young upstarts. And I sort of thought, oh, this sermon, I don't know why these Ministers have so much trouble. This is, this is great stuff. And, but I look back at it now and I go, oh my goodness, did I actually say that? Oh dear. They used to be a fair bit shorter too, by the way. Um, things just seem to get out of hand sometimes. But, but my minister, he would work with me. And I remember the very first sermon that I ever preached, I only had one person listening to it. My minister said, come to my office. And he sat down and I stood up and preached the sermon to him. And then he gave me feedback. Now, that wouldn't have done me any good at all if I wasn't willing to listen to him and to take his advice and change the things that I had wrong. And um, once again, as I look back at some of my older sermons, um, I can see that he actually was pretty easy on me. For the word of God to increase and prevail mightily, the Lord is raising up a new generation of preachers today. And guess what? We have to recognise them. We have to recognise people who God is giving the gift of being able to preach. Because our world needs preachers. You know, actually, two minds about megachurches. You know, megachurches... You can get great stuff there, but there's probably heaps and heaps and heaps of people who have been gifted for preaching who are sitting listening to one person. You know? And I, I know some churches are really good because they, they send people out to preach in other places, and that's great. But 
We need to recognise people, and there's probably people here who are gifted with being able to preach. And we have a responsibility to encourage them to preach and preach often and maybe even go out and preach full time. And for those of us who are preachers, we need to be teachable because we don't always get it right. And it's important that we do get our faith right, as we're going to see in chapter 19. So, Paul returns to Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. Earlier he'd sailed away from Ephesus, and you can see now he's returning via the inland route. Apollos is long gone. He sailed over to Corinth. But it appears as if Apollos has left something behind And that is a misunderstanding about baptism. Remember I'd said that that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. And when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found some disciples and and he realised that there was something missing. And he realised that there was something deficient in their faith. And he said to them, did did you receive the Holy Spirit when, when you first believed? I said, no. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, well, into what then were you baptised? And he said, into John's baptism. Now, there's a bit of a debate here amongst Bible scholars over whether these 12 men were disciples of Jesus or whether they were disciples of John the Baptist. But I think the fact that Luke refers to them as disciples uh, means that that they were Christians. And certainly with it being tied to Apollos, who, who we know that he, he knew about Jesus and he taught about Jesus, and he also had, had only been baptised with the baptism of John, I think it's a pretty fair indicator that these people were disciples of Jesus, but their faith, what they believed, was a little bit off the mark. That There was just something missing there. And so Paul explained to them the difference. He said, John baptised with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is going to come after him, that is Jesus. All right, so Jesus wasn't a successor to John the Baptist. Jesus didn't just continue on doing what John the Baptist began. Jesus was the one who John was pointing to. And John preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yes, Jesus preached that too. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus' disciples baptised people just the same as John the Baptist did. But from Acts chapter 2, something changes. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, this is where we see a change in the message regarding baptism. In Acts chapter 2, the message became, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No longer was baptism just looking forward and preparing the way for Jesus' coming, because Jesus had already come. And now he'd sent his Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of heaven isn't just coming, the kingdom of heaven has already begun to arrive. From the time of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church and the Holy Spirit had come into the hearts and lives of believers. And this is something that John the Baptist himself had foretold. John the Baptist had said, I baptise you with water, but one who is mightier than I is coming and I'm not even fit to undo his shoelaces. And he'll baptise you with Holy Spirit 
and fire. And that had happened. Jesus had come. And since Pentecost, Christians were being baptised in the Holy Spirit. The word of God was increasing. And the word of God was prevailing mightily. Because when these men heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. It was important for them to get their faith right. They were close, but they were missing something which was vitally important. Baptism in the name of Jesus. And after they'd been baptised in the name of Jesus, then he laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now I want to encourage you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptised, And this is something that you really should consider, being baptised in the name of Jesus. Anyway, for three months after this, Paul preached in the Jewish synagogue. Some believed, but he got a fair bit of opposition. And so he withdrew from the synagogue and he continued preaching in a hall. Pretty much like us, really. So there you go, it's okay to have church in a hall. And the Lord was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. But then something strange happened. The power that was being displayed in the name of Jesus was obvious. It was so obvious that that even items of clothing that Paul had touched were being carried to the sick and they were being made well. It was so obvious that non-Christians could see the value of it and they wanted to get in on the act. And seven sons of someone who claimed to be a Jewish high priest were trying to drive out a demon using the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they didn't even know Jesus. They weren't Christians themselves. But they were trying to drive out demons using the name of Jesus that this other fellow believes in. They'd seen it work for Paul and they thought, right, well, we'll do that too. And the demon just goes feral. I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who the blazes are you? And the man who was possessed by the evil spirit got the better of him. And he beat up seven men so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about how demons flee at the name of Jesus. Well, what happened here? They used the name of Jesus, but it all went terribly wrong. And there's an important lesson here for us. In any battle with evil, the name of Jesus is power, all right, but only for those who are in Jesus. You see, it's not the actual literal speaking of a name that gives power. It's confessing the name of the one who is in you. You know, I've seen on vampire movies so so often, like they'll they'll give you a cross and say, right, there's a cross, you just hold that up and that'll protect you from the evil. All that are rubbish. When we belong to Jesus, when we are filled with his Holy Spirit and then we confess the name of Jesus, this name which we worship, this name to whom we bow our knee, then demons will flee. Not only because he is Lord, but because he is our Lord. Demons aren't afraid of just a name and they're not afraid of us. They're afraid of the one who is in us. 
A life yielded to the Lord Jesus is a life which is filled with the presence and the power of Jesus. But the sons of Sceva, they weren't believers. And they were not disciples of Jesus and Jesus was not in them. And so they copped a hiding. And that incident caused everyone who heard about it to develop a holy fear for God. This was, this was no magic trick. This was no formula that you just follow and just say the name of Jesus and, and, and everything goes away. This was something to do with the very presence of God himself. And the Lord's victory over evil should always develop in us praise for Jesus and a healthy and holy fear of God. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And what did that look like when the people of Ephesus began to fear God? There was a total and complete yielding to God in repentance. That's what it was. Verse 18. Many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practised magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How seriously do we really take repentance? Now, as I read the Gospels, it's pretty obvious that the one thing that always attracts the ire of Jesus is hypocrisy when we have an external show of righteousness without a changed life. Now, I'd call that religion without repentance. How seriously do we, as disciples of Jesus, really take repentance? One little boy defined repentance as being sorry enough to stop. Well, sometimes I feel bad enough about my sin to say, sorry, But is that it? Is that really what Jesus wants of me, just for me to be sorry, to be sorry about what I've done, or to be sorry for for what I'm like? Don't you think Jesus wants to change me? Does the kingdom of God really prevail mightily when I just say sorry? And have every intention of just staying the same? I believe in many ways we've become a generation who are starving to see the power of God. Am I right in that? Yeah, we're a generation who are starving to see the power of God. Are you starving to see the power of God? Are you longing to see the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily in your community? If not, I might just stop preaching right now and come find another town to preach in because I just told you this. There's a big need for preachers out there. Are you starving for that? I'm actually looking for an answer. Oh, you are? Oh, good. Okay, so 
So we are a generation who's starving to see the power of God. You know, the thing is, we fail to realise sometimes that the work of God begins right here. With changed hearts and lives. It begins with the people who don't just say sorry, but with the people who say never again. That's the way I wear. I don't want to be like that anymore. Lord, will you change me? Because when the word of God prevails mightily, he makes us sorry enough to stop, to use the words of that little boy. But, you know, if you're anything like me, that's very easy to say, but not so easy to do. Usually to carry it through means that we need to take some concrete, practical and often very costly steps to help us to stop. And so repentance is God and us working together. And that's what happened in Ephesus. These new believers, they came, confessed, and it was a public confession of all of their wrongdoings. And some of them had been practising magic. They'd been caught up in the worship of demons and they brought their books of spells and they burnt them. And that was no little thing. You know, you sort of might think, oh yeah, they burnt a few books. Big deal. You know, I throw out books all the time. People give me books to read and I know I'm never going to read them and I keep them for a few years and then I've got to make room on my bookshelf and I throw them away and I haven't even read them. I'm sorry if you've ever given me one of those books. Um, I give books away to Lifeline all the time. No big deal. These books were written long before printing presses. Very expensive to have a book at this time of, of the time scale. The total value is 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver was a day's wages. I did the maths for you because I knew it would be too early for you to do it now. It works out to about equivalent of $10 million in our currency. This was no little thing. When you know that, you you might start to realise that these people were burning their prized possessions. They're the sorts of things that they were so expensive that if it was today, you'd be looking through the catalogue and go, oh, I really, really want one of those, but I can't afford it. I'm just going to have to save up a bit more and more. It's a bit like when the Hair and Forbes catalogue turn up, Scott. You know, yep, we get that Hair and Forbes catalogue and, oh, I'd love that sheet metal bender and that guillotine and, oh, it's just way, way out of our price range. What, What are you guys wanting to buy? Sheet metal benders and guillotines. Yeah, I could see that you're in, big into those, Nolene. Yes. It'll go really well beside your piano in your, in your music studio. Yep. But these were things that they would save up for and save up for and save up for and then finally they could afford them and they'd go, well, which one do I really want? And they'd pick the one that they wanted. These were their cherished possessions. But more than this, it was part of their history. It was their identity. It was part of who they were, these things. These things that used to play such an enormous part in their lives, these things that were part of their very identity, they threw them on the bonfire. And the word of God prevailed mightily. When you first become a Christian, usually there's going to be a lot of big changes that God makes in your life real quick. But repentance isn't just a one-off event. It's an ongoing transformation. God doesn't let us just stay the same. 
He's continually changing us and refining us. There's a big theological word for it called sanctification. You've probably heard it. Sanctification is the Lord changing us daily to become more and more like his son. And part of this sanctification, one thing I can promise you, is the Lord is going to reveal to you, as he does to me, things that we need to repent of. And I can promise you this, and and please don't take it the wrong way, but you don't look anything like Jesus yet. Uh, You're probably a, a lot more like Jesus than when you first believed. But the Lord is not finished with you yet, just as he's not finished with me yet. And so this side of glory, the Lord's going to continue to reveal to us things that we need to repent of. And these things may be things that cut to the very core of who you are. You may even find that there's things in your house that you need to burn. Now, of course, as I read this Bible reading a number of times and, and as I wrote this sermon... I couldn't help but wonder, what does the Lord want me to burn? And the very first time that that I read the Bible reading, I already knew what it was. See, I I got a bunch of DVDs sitting in the cupboard, movies um, and series things and so on. And some of them, when I watched them, they really weren't exactly what I was expecting and they're a fair bit more crude than what I thought. And so... They've just, since I watched them the first time, they've just sat in the cupboard thinking, well, I'm never going to watch those again. And I thought, well, maybe I could sell them on eBay. And I thought, oh, then I'll be a a marketer of crude stuff. That's probably not a good look for a minister. What am I going to do with them? They're, They're too valuable to just throw away. I mean, these things cost money. What am I going to do with them? And so they've just sat in the back of the cupboard. Well, as soon as I'd read, read this, I knew what God wanted me to do with them. Um... So one day, um, when I have a bonfire, well, we had some at home last night, but just sort of didn't seem the occasion to do it. <laughs> I'm just going to have to just throw them on the fire. That's the best place for them. What do you need to repent of? With God's help, what actions do you need to change? What attitudes, what practices, what's in your home that you need to take outside and burn? Maybe we should be like that church in Ephesus and have a big bonfire one day after church or, or go down to the river somewhere and build a big bonfire and, and we bring out trailer loads of stuff that we know God doesn't want us to have anymore and we throw it all on the fire. What is it? might be some idol or religious trinket that someone brought you home from an overseas holiday as a souvenir but you know that it's got religious ties to it and you need to burn it. I remember my dad telling me about the time he burned all of his Masonic Lodge paraphernalia. Some mates of mine, actually they were my brother's mates but I stole them when he went away. Uh, (laughs) Some mates of mine, when they became Christians, they burned all their satanic music. Uh, It's a fair while ago because I think they were cassettes. You children don't know what cassettes are. Um, Maybe you need to burn your internet modem. Or your smartphone, if there's stuff coming in on that, that you know that you have trouble not looking at it. Maybe every day when you get your newspaper, you need to burn the horoscope because you're always tempted to read it. 
Well, maybe it goes much deeper than that. Maybe it's ingrained racism. Maybe it's your politics that God wants you to change. Or maybe it's your career that you need to change. Maybe it's the tough guy, gruff exterior. Or maybe it's the proud, self-confidence, self-righteous know-it-all. The word of God prevails mightily. And when that happens, the Lord will cut right to the heart. He cuts right to the very core of your being, to the very identity of who we are. Because here's the truth. I cannot be changed to be like Jesus and remain the same as I am. I cannot be changed to be like Jesus and remain the same as I am. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily.